listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Street Epistemology, Conversation Without Chaos by Anthony Mangabasco. It was first broadcast live on the 20th of August 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online is still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have an exciting origin story other than I just went out to try to record conversations and upload them and get feedback to see, am I doing street epistemology? Is this it? I mean, or, you know, help me. <laughs> I, I wanted help to figure out how to get better at that, at that approach. And I actually did. I was getting feedback from the community and uploading uh, examples and growing from them. I was kind of falling forward, as my friend Reed likes to say. Um, making mistakes, taking note of them, and then trying to correct for them the next time I went out. And that was really – that was a profound impact, I think, on my growth with this approach, was getting feedback from others. Okay. So how, how big and dedicated is this community? You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, whenever I hear street epistemology, you'll be happy to know I think you. You know, so I, I don't know how, how big that, that community is and how engaged they are when, when you oh, wow. are, the, I guess, one of the first people to pop your head up above the parapet and start, you know, <laughs> producing public content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I would say there's probably 100,000. This is a wild guess. I cannot back this up. I'm roughly 30% confident that this is factually true using SE language here. But I would say we probably have 100,000 people who are familiar with the approach. Okay, so um, yeah. if if you were to compare Anthony, like your your sort of early days of of interviewing people, guinea pigging the public um, versus how you do it now, I mean, how how has that developed over the years? Did you say guinea pigging the public? Guinea pigging, yeah, you've been oh, like you, testing it out with them. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's a, that's essentially what I'm. I think that's a fair characterization. I, and I was guinea pigging myself, like mm-hmm. I didn't exactly know what I was doing when I first went out. I, I really didn't. And you can see that in my earlier conversations. I was arguing, debating. I was providing facts that was causing people to become defensive. And then maybe I'd try to ask a a probing Socratic question and then fumble on the ending and then, you know, (laughs) and then try to learn from it. But um, just to quickly answer your question, there's a lot of people that are doing this and some of them go out in public. I mean, very few, I think, actually go out in public and record them and upload them. Most people learn the techniques. They wait for opportunities to try it and then they try it. That's usually how it goes. But I would say we probably have 100,000 people who are aware of this approach right now. That's a guess. Um, It's been growing over the years, and it's gaining momentum. Lots of people are hearing about it, largely in the atheist skeptic community. You know, that's that's how this was born. It was born in that community. But we want to blow it out beyond that. You know, that's why I'm excited to talk to a bunch of skeptics who – who it may be a mix of theists and atheists. We want everyone to sort of learn this technique and, and try to put it into practice. For sure, yeah. Okay, then. So let's pretend I'm an idiot who hasn't done any research and spent all his time trying to figure out anagrams of Anthony Magna Bosco. Um, can you give me the sort of, um, uh, you know, idiot's guide to what exactly is street epistemology? Yeah, I, I, I pulled up a few slides here. Maybe we could just cut to them really quickly. So street epistemology in a nutshell is just a way of engaging on a claim where you're using questions and you're resisting the temptation to give people facts or point out where they're mistaken. It's taking your ego, setting it aside and exploring their claim with them and trying to be a mirror so that they can hear what they're saying. Uh, That's it in a nutshell. 
it's it sounds easy, but when you try to do it, I don't know if anyone here has actually tried to do it. It'd be kind of interesting. Maybe in the comments, people can pipe up. It can be a little bit difficult to do this because I think many people are under the impression that I just need to give people facts to correct them. They'll accept them. And then we'll be on our merry way towards a wonderful, bright future for humans. <laughs> doesn't usually work that way. Usually we become very defensive in it. So um, I have this other slide here. Usually when we talk about sensitive topics, it gets very confusing because we're talking past each other. And with the street epistemology approach, it's all about understanding. It's all about trying to figure out what the claim is, why they think it's true, and what, re, uh, what method are they using to verify those reasons. So a big goal of this approach is understanding what the other person is claiming to be true. So very often we assume that we know what somebody is thinking, or we assume that what we, we assume that the reasons that we found compelling not to believe it is something that they'll find compelling to not believe it. And that can, that can often be problematic. People can become very defensive if you just don't listen to them. And uh, I'm going to fly through these because I think we'll have more purchase with you just sort of talking to me. But I did want to cover these for people who may not know what street epistemology is. Now, these acronyms are book titles. Uh, the first one in the background there is, and I intentionally overlaid these just to sort of show that, you know, there, there's a, I guess, a more fresh way of looking at this. But uh, the first book that came out that caught my attention in 2012, I think it was, is A Manual for Creating Atheists which introduced the street epistemology method. And then back in, uh, I think it was 2019, Boghossian wrote a second book that incorporates a lot, of, a lot of the things that we've learned over the years from the first book. And maybe somebody can drop in the, uh, the actual breakdown of those titles. The other one is How to Have Impossible Conversations. This is, um, this is one area where I think a lot of people get confused about street epistemology. When we're engaging with somebody about their claim, we're not necessarily exploring whether the claim is factually true. We're, explaining, we're, we're exploring how they developed their level of certainty that it's true. And there's a distinction there, and there's an important one. Because, number one, I'm not sure we could actually find out anything is, is actually true for sure. Um, but it's the person's certainty that causes them to act out on their beliefs, the more certain you are, the more likely you may be to vote for a candidate or um, run out and buy a homeopathy cure rather than go see a doctor. So it's the person's certainty in the claim that we're interested in. And go ahead. Times I've heard you kind of, you know, ask people to rate it on like a percentage scale, you know, yes. before and after, right? That's right. Usually we'll say something like, uh, can you rank your certainty or another word for this is confidence. Can you rate your certainty or confidence on a scale from one to 10 or zero to 100? And uh, the higher the number, the more confident or certain you are that this is true. And um, that question alone can really result in a lot of people thinking about their claim. They may say, I'm 100% sure. No, 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 I'm 95% sure. And then you might be able to explore those differences. There's also it's actually kind of just coming in there, right? There's, there's a bravado <sighs> and a sense of wanting to be shown that you're confident of your own, your own beliefs, right? Sure. Yeah, very much so. Um, a lot of people, I think, confuse the certainty or confidence scale with my commitment to the belief. So we're exploring how sure you are that this is factually true, not how dedicated you are to the belief. 
So sometimes people can get wrapped up in that distinction. One thing that we found is it's helpful to use an example where you say, well, how certain are you that I own a Ferrari on a scale from one to 10 or zero to 100 or something? Um, And then just playing around with that hypothetical can be helpful before you move on to a to a claim that might be tied more to a person's identity. But yes, uh, trying to get a sense of how sure they are that it's true can be really helpful. Okay. It does look like you've stolen a chair from a Ferrari. So that's I know. A, that's it's so garish. A, for sure, right? Okay. And, you know, I mean, what what is the aim of the – I mean, the aim of the, the conversation is to try and at least get them to examine that level of confidence. Are you trying to bring things down, bring confidence levels down? Or just are you just trying to create atheists, you heathen? That's a really good question. So oftentimes I think people can get the impression that our sole goal is to knock people off of their levels of confidence. And I would say that that's not necessarily the case. It's um, it's evaluating the quality of your reasons and the reliability of your, of your method for thinking to a high degree of confidence that something is true. So it's it's basically doing a health check of your your epistemology or how you're coming to claim that you can know things. And it could be kind of a humbling process when you take a look at your reasons and you think, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a little bit off here. I'm ranking myself really high on my confidence, but I'm going to move back to that slide. But um, I'm really struggling to come up with reasons to justify why that's the case. Why is that? Like I've had this belief for so long. I really think that it's true. I'm 100% confident. But when um, when we're exploring my reasons with this person, I'm finding a really I'm having a little bit of trouble um, with to my own standard justifying that level of confidence, and that's the point of it. It's to do a health check to see is my certainty justified, and how often do we do that on our beliefs? We don't usually do it very often. We're sort of just acquiring beliefs. We might hear something or or read an article or go to a presentation, and I think we're forming. We're forming beliefs, and I think we're assigning levels of certainty alongside of those. But we don't usually inspect the quality of the supports underneath it. And that's what we're doing with street epistemology. So it isn't always about knocking down beliefs and turning people into atheists. Somebody might have a really good reason and a reliable method for concluding that God is real. That very well can be the case. Um, So when my advice for people who are using this approach when you're engaging with people is be open to the possibility that they do have good reasons, that they can justify their confidence. However, if the person can't do that, then maybe they should take another look at their certainty and possibly readjust it. When we have these talks, it's all about the person that we're speaking with and them running the show. They're taking us through the conversation. They're evaluating their confidence. uh, And that's basically it. It's not about foisting a worldview on somebody else. Okay, so I mean, cool. to me, it's it, it's it's very different from what I've seen. You know, I sort of got into this type of movement by watching like Matt Dillahunty and the Atheist Experience. And I know you you've been on the show as well, but that's it's much more confrontational. It's much more examination right. of facts, um, and mm-hmm. and and you know, uh, and I think there's there's plenty of occasions where people have said that you know watching that show or having that type of conversation has made them turn around and take a look at themselves, you know? So, so you, you know, I guess the street epistemology method is a, should we say a gentle, more patient way of doing it? You know, and you, you certainly said it was, it sounded easy. To, to me, it sounds mm. incredibly difficult, you know, as a, again, a stereotypical, stereotypical Scotsman, it's hard for me to listen to say something 
which I think is ridiculous without ah. calling them out on it. Sorry, mate, you're talking pish is exactly how we we would say in Scotland. So, I mean, you, you know, you seem to have a pretty good poker face, Anthony, but there must be times along the way where, you know, you, you've heard something pretty outrageous are out there and you've had to sort of take a step back and pause. And I've noticed there's a lot of, long healthy pauses in your video so like how do you how do you take that and process that you know sometimes really out there information and kind of mm. formulate that into a into a respectful question back at your at your conversational partner mm. that's so i think you suggested that maybe i was saying that street epistemology is easy um it's easy to grasp the concepts, I think, but it's difficult to put it into play for the very reasons that you brought up, because people will say things that will just irritate you. You know that it's, or you have a high degree of confidence that it's not true. Um, you probably have personal experience to back up your view or maybe even data to show that they're wrong. And it's very challenging to the practitioner to set those things aside and try to figure out how they concluded that these things are true. That is a big challenge, and it's not easy. Your ego, I think I even have a slide for this later on, but um, your ego can actually get in the way. That's probably the biggest impediment to being good at this approach is your own desire to win. I think I have a, sli a, a slide here. Let me move to the next slide. All right, yeah. This kind of ties in a little bit. Sometimes when we watch people engage with theists, for example, about God, you mentioned the atheist experience, but it could be anything. Um, it could even be your own experiences. We've often battled with people about that claim. We think that they're wrong. We think that they can't justify it, and we want to battle with them. And this is completely different. This is trying to approach it as a, as a partnership. How can we explore this together to figure out if it's true? Now, some people do respond better to a battle. Just give me the facts. But most people, I think, tend to especially family members and friends, do you want to battle with your mom about this or would you like to explore it patiently and respectfully? So you kind of have to ask yourself, what are my goals? What am I trying to achieve here? Who's my audience? How are they going to respond? If, if something that I watched on a TV show that seemed to be really effective with that caller, like they just destroyed that caller, do you really want to use that approach with somebody who you value that relationship with or perhaps even a stranger? Um, I found that uh, the exploration approach is far more effective than the battle. Now, there are times that I battle. Sometimes I slip into that mode. It's easy to do. But um, if I want to help a person take another, another look at their views, then the exploration approach, I think, is the way to go. And like you mentioned earlier, we've got videos showing how this plays out. It's, it's, it's profound when you watch the person responding to your questions about a deeply held belief that they hold and they're not becoming defensive. They're enjoying the conversation. They're taking a second or two to think about it and you're pausing to let them think about it. Um, it's a really wonderful thing when you see happen, but it can be challenging to do. It seems to happen quite a lot. I mean, you know, for, for the videos of yours that I've watched, a lot of them start off with, Hey, have you got five minutes? And they say, yes. And it's, you know, it's the person you're having the conversation with is essentially in charge of when they walk away. Very rarely do they walk away, um, you know, in, in five minutes or under. Most of your videos are much more long form, right? So I guess that's that's evidence in itself that, you know, you're you're certainly yeah. st striking a note. Um, 
unless, of course, you only post the good ones and you're, you know, there's a lot of three, four minute conversations that that, that never make it onto your channel, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I want to get on a little bit and talk specifically about the YouTube side of things in, in, Absolutely. in, in a moment or two. But, you know, um, what, one, one thing that I, I've spotted a lot is people come back to you a lot as well, Anthony, right? It seems like you're, 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 you're planting some seeds uh, with, with some conversations and, and, you know, if you've got your, your, your usual haunting places where you go and stand, then, you know, you'll have people coming back to you time and time again to, to follow on a conversation, to talk about something that's sprung to mind, or maybe they've got some great new evidence they want to talk to you with. So like, how, how do you, you, you sort of deal with that when, when you get repeat customers and probably you can't remember the first conversation offhand, right? Mm hmm. So yes, when I go out and do street epistemology in public with my camera, which very few people do, but I love doing it when I have the time, and that's been curtailed lately, I will go out and usually go to the same location and try to wear the same clothing and be out there for a couple of hours so that I can – it's not easy – it's not hard to get one person to stop for one conversation. The challenge is because because what we're doing in street epistemology is having brief interactions – and then encouraging a person to go home and think about it and then come back and so that they can process it. You know, it occurred to me that it occurred to me that, well, what's happening? What happened to that person that I had that 30 minute talk with? So, yes, I've been trying to encourage people to come back for more than one talk. I have a little I actually have it right here. It's in a bag, but these little you ever see these things. Yeah. So I give one of these little puzzle pieces and I, I'm trying to get people to come back for three talks. And it's cool. People tend to. It's weird. I, sometimes I see people that I've talked to that don't stop, and I don't know what that means. Are they just busy, or were they perhaps disturbed by the first conversation and they don't want to come back? It could be a myriad of things. But when I do see people again, they tend to remember the talk. They usually want to talk about it again, and they oftentimes refer friends to come up for conversations as well. So I get the sense from that type of feedback that people are valuing the conversations, but if I was battling with them, if I was arguing with them, if I was ridiculing them, that very likely wouldn't happen. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, unless there's any other nuts and bolts of the actual technique you want to talk about, I want to pivot on and talk about specifically the YouTube side of things. Sure. Um, I want to know, like, I'm sure you've had plenty of conversations that are not on camera versus the ones that are on camera. Is there a difference between those? I mean, I personally would be extra self-conscious of what I say and do if I know that I'm going to end up on YouTube. So, you know, mm. do, do you notice any any difference or does it take you a while to kind of break them down and get them to open up if they know that the, the GoPro is pointing at them? That's a good question. It's It's kind of an art, I think, to help a person feel comfortable with a stranger to surface a deeply held belief and allow you to challenge them on it. I mean, think about it. It's pretty, I mean, think about it. It's kind of hard, but you can do it. It can be done. And, uh, I guess the best way to go about doing it is just to simply be as transparent as possible, but don't over explain. Like when I first started doing this, I think I, when I first started doing this, I didn't explain anything. I just popped the camera up and said, Hey, can we talk about your God belief? (laughs) These days, these days I build a little rapport. I explain what I'm doing. I'm doing street epistemology. We take a claim that you think is true, and I'd like to explore your confidence in it and the quality of your reasons. Um, 
some people have complained now that maybe I'm over explaining what I'm doing to the point of making people uncomfortable. But, you know, sometimes it's like a pendulum. So I'm always kind of tweaking it to find like, what's the optimum way of uh, explaining what I'm doing, but not scaring people away. (laughs) And that's a little tricky to do. I guess as long as they don't walk away, that's the main thing. Usually it's just relief that somebody approaching you with a clipboard isn't going to ask for money, you know? So there's, there's definitely got to be a bit of relief Ah, there. Maybe So so. what about, what, what about, um, again, you know, I'm sure it must happen that the people that you talk to are going to be waiting until that video pops up on your channel. Do they, 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 do they watch back a lot? Do they contact you online after watching the videos? Do you ever get complaints from them uh, for, for what you've posted or if they think you're, 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 you're painting them in a bad light or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Good question. Mm. I do sometimes get message for, messages from people who say, did you upload the video and can I get the link because I want to watch it? Yeah. And it's it's almost always it's from a person that the conversation just was sort of blah. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't unique from everything else that I've uploaded. It's not that it was bad or embarrassing or, or a bad representation of SE. It mm-hmm. just compared to the library of stuff I've uploaded, it wasn't really different. Like these days, I really want to have something different and, un- and unique to put on my channel. So that's usually the governing thing. Um, I did have a few people reach out to say, take the video down. Uh, that's happened a couple times. And uh, usually I try to negotiate that a little bit. Like, do you mind if I maybe just remove your name from the video or beep out something or or maybe re-upload a blurred version of it? Um, but I, I usually comply. Like if, if somebody says no, like I have one woman, um, she thought pagan goddesses were real. And we had we had two talk about multiple talks. We had two good talks. And uh, she had graduated and I think she was looking for a job and she said, you know, I'm now in the job market. I'm a little worried that somebody might stumble across that video. Would you mind taking it down? And I took it down, but it crushes me, you know, yeah. because yeah. Uh, I've had this wonderful, lovely talk and I spent hours editing it. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll usually take videos down, but most of the videos, the conversations that I have are really good representations of se and lately i've been i've been putting in my airpods and broadcasting the audio we have a discord server so people can listen in live and then i think it becomes a little bit more evident to some of the the skeptics like how come he isn't uploading every video when you listen in you'll probably understand why and it's not for nefarious reasons okay i because that was one of my questions what doesn't make it to to your channel and are there nefarious reasons behind it? I'm slightly disappointed that there's innocent reasons behind it, but what can you do? Um, okay. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of the videos of yours I've seen uh, appear to be recorded on a college campus of some sorts. Um, mm-hmm. Has You know, would, you know, go, going to college is usually a time, uh, you know, for young people to, to, to have a real kind of transition in their lives anyway. You know, are you, are you deliberately going there because it's a it's a well, firstly a busy place, but is it a particularly good um, opportunity to catch people at a time when they might be looking to sort of branch out from maybe whatever they've grown up with a little bit? Does it make your conversations more more open? I usually go to a hiking trail or the campus, and the the campus I think is better in terms of meeting younger people who might be a little bit more comfortably being recorded and they're already in a, in an educational learning environment. So they may already be somewhat primed to being questioned. 
so that's one of the reasons why I go there. And it's also like physically close to my house. You know, it's just a five minute drive or 10 minute drive. Sure. Um, there are some advantages to the campus too. So like you often see the same people walking by. Or if I do give a puzzle piece, maybe they take it to the class and one of their classmates asks, well, what, is, what the heck is that thing about? And then yeah. they share the story of the guy asking questions with the camera in the courtyard. So um, I get a lot of people who walk up to me who have – they're already somewhat familiar with what I'm doing. Um, I'd say maybe 20 percent of the time that's the case. There, there's pros and cons to both look to the locations that I go to. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just be clear for anyone that, that's watching this. Going out in public with a camera to do this approach is very unusual, and you don't have to do the, that aspect of it to use this approach, okay? I do that because I want to have video examples to show people how to do it. Make yeah. sense? And, and, and please, listeners, don't walk into a college campus with a, with a camera on. Um, you may end up on some kind of register. I don't know how you got away with doing it, Anthony, but uh, oh, really? kudos to you for that. Yeah. Uh, so I've had some I've had some issues with the campuses in the city, unfortunately. I've worked out okay. most of those details. Now nowadays, uh, I mean, I don't go there anymore because of COVID. But sure, uh, I, I usually will call in advance and let them know that I'm going to be out there, where I'll be, how long I'll be out there for, and then I call them again when I leave. We've we've sort of worked out a deal that way. If somebody does call to complain, the police are usually aware that I'm out there. Okay. All right. So, um, if if you're, let's say, some of your usual spots are um, the campus and the hiking trail. Well, if the camp, oh, on number two, way to go. Um, if you're <laughs> on the campus, you know that's obviously you're you're going to be talking to, I guess, people seeking further education. That that sort yeah. of belies maybe a certain level of um, education and class level. If you're on a hiking trail. Maybe the same thing as well. There could be an argument that your street epistemology is not very street, Anthony. Uh, you know, never going down to the, you know, let, let's say a poorer neighborhood um, to, mm. to to have, you know, discussions of people of different classes more often. Is that something that you've done and I've just missed or um, it's just yeah. kind of not on your radar? I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, when I first started doing street epistemology, I actually went down to our, the downtown area of our city Um is urban and noisy and i mean yeah you run into all sorts of people there that's where i actually started but when you start uploading videos see i'm 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 skewed in a bit because i'm thinking about production quality so i have videos where i'm standing at a bus stop downtown san antonio texas interviewing people but every seven minutes a bus shows up and more than likely that person i'm interviewing needs to get on the bus so you, I think that there were somewhat like selective pressures that moved me into those locations. It wasn't like by design or, or anything like that. Um, you can do this approach anywhere, and I've done it almost everywhere. I've used it in Ubers. I've used it on an airplane, uh, airplanes. I, I was in Oslo, Norway, and just went outside a, a restaurant and, and started doing conversations there where people said, there's no way that you can use it in Norway because everyone's so skeptical and, and uh, secular. No, that's not the case. No. You could do it there. No, no, no for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously the, the craziest claim you just made there is that buses turn up every seven minutes. Everyone in the UK is like, that doesn't happen. We're going to have to probe <laughs> you on that one during the, during uh, the break, that might, I that's just, uh, I, I kind of pulled that number out of my, out of the air here. 
All right, fair enough. I'll I'll I'll, I'll back down. Yeah. So, um, you know, you just mentioned like the editing process there, and obviously, you, um, it it seems to me you are quite meticulous in not just the editing process. There's a there's a nice warning message, a warning message at the start, just sort of you know encouraging the the viewers to be to be polite in the comments, which is really nice. Your descriptions have meticulous timestamps in them as well, right? So um, if you've got some raw footage there, how long has it taken you to review that, annotate it, post it up? It, 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 it must be exhaustive. It's, I, take, I spend way too much time editing my videos, and I don't know why I do that. Um, some of it is, is based on feedback. So I've had conversations with people who have changed their minds and then I've had subsequent conversations with them and they say, you know, one of the hardest aspects of this process of, you know, when you were using street epistemology with me was reading the comments that people left under my video because sometimes people weren't polite or they assumed things about their position or, well, you just weren't really a true believer in that. And uh, that kind of feedback, feedback, resulted me uh, resulted sorry i can't speak maybe it's the beer that kind of feedback resulted in me adding more things to the video and then um you know when you start viewing this as when you start viewing the videos as not just showing how to challenge somebody respectfully on a specific claim you start looking at it as how can i teach people this approach in the most effective way so that when you when you're starting to look at the the conversations from that point of view it dawns on you, you know, it might be nice to include timestamps to take people to directly to the claim or directly sure. to the moment where they start to think, okay, there's a pause here. So let's link directly to the pause so people can watch that. And other things, links and other captions on the videos. But I got to tell you, like, one of the best ways to get really good at this approach, if anyone tries to do this, see if you can record the audio at least of your conversations and play it back. And if you have the time, Try to make a transcript of your conversation because when I was adding captions to the videos, you have to go really slow. You have to pause it. You have to listen intently. You have to rewind it. You're typing it up and you start to notice where, oh gosh, they were just about to say that they believe this on faith. And I walked over them because I was so intent on asking them the next question. So it, it helps with the learning process when, you, when you're involved in the editing of the video. It's been really helpful. That's interesting. I, I know, like uh, at the end of some of your videos, like after the the person's walked away, you maybe you maybe sort of reflect on the conversation for a few yeah. minutes. So you go, but may, maybe there's there's something else to be had there, Anthony. You know, like a like a follow up video, or if you've had any extra extra communication with that person outside of it, or extra thoughts afterwards. You know, that mm -hmm. that type of, or, or maybe that's the sort of stuff that goes on in your on your Discord server as well. You know, that sort of. Um, I guess you know post post mortem of a of a conversation, right? No. I do try if I if I have a little time at the end of the talk and as they're walking away, I might actually turn to the camera and explain what I think went really well and what didn't go well, or you know if there was something unique about the talk, I try to point it out because again, I'm trying to teach people how to do this. It doesn't happen in every video, but I, if there's an opportunity to do that, sometimes. I want to give a breakdown of the conversation, like in a, a post-mortem, like you said, immediately after. But sometimes as I'm turning to the camera to do that, somebody will walk up and then it interrupts my ability to do a recap of that talk.
Ah, uh, okay. All right. So, like, a lot of your interviews are just kind of, there's, are there people queuing up to speak to you or they see that somebody's walking away? I'm going to take my chance and jump mm-hmm. in and blow Anthony's mind with my uh, beliefs. When I first started, that never happened. I always had to ask people. But when you start going to the same location frequently and you start getting a reputation, people start talking about what you're talking about. Uh, I've had people line up. I've had people walk up mid-conversation and I've had to say, if you don't mind, I, I need to finish this conversation first before I get to you. So that's what's so cool about this. Because you would think that, oh gosh, exploring my God belief or homeopathy or should I wear a mask or not, some sensitive topic these days might be really contentious and nobody wants to do it. And my experience has been the complete opposite. Most people love it and they want to do more of it when you use this approach. If I was beating them over the head with facts, it probably wouldn't be the case. I'd imagine no. Okay, well, you know what? You've 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 sort of hinted in that direction there as well. It, it, it doesn't just have to be about religion and, you know, Rumor has it there is an election coming up in a couple of months' time in your country. So, uh, I, so. Oh, I know. Um, are you expecting to be, you know, assuming you actually can communicate with with the public again between now and now, are you expecting to have more discussions about political subjects as you work your way towards the election, or have you uh, have you had any notable conversations about that in the past? Because uh, you know, I think political loyalty can almost uh, is is analogous in many ways to to religious loyalty, mm. right? So I think there's there's the same belief structures and potentially flaws as well, right? Mm. Yeah, I think we've been seeing we've been seeing a hunger for more conversations other than supernatural claims. If you want to if you want to see examples of karma or the Muslim god or the Hindu god or the Christian god or ghosts that 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 stuff's out there. We have lots of examples of that, but we don't really have a lot of examples of people using this approach on political claims. We're moving in that direction. Um, the nonprofit that we started, we've tabled at a couple of different political events, and we've used this approach on political claims. And there are other people who are regularly doing that. I think there's even a channel in the Discord server for street epistemology. I think we have one of the shortcuts to it. Um, it's an invite. So if you're on Discord and you like talking with other people or texting about this specific subject – there's a subchannel for politics only, and I think there's another one for coronavirus, and there's another one for um, maybe veganism or something. So you can use this approach on all different types of claims. Lately, I've been sh- I've been shifting a little bit on the examples that I post on my Twitter. I've been posting less religious examples of interactions where I'm using SE, street epistemology, and more examples where I'm challenging religious claims. So okay. if you want to kind of get a taste of that, you can either head to that Discord server or, um, I guess, my Twitter. Yeah, which is at Anthony Magna Bosco, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you should um, have just, gone for yeah. you should have gone for tweet epistemology, but hey, you know maybe that's still available. You should go for it, right? Somebody, I think somebody grabbed that. Boo! Yeah. All right. Well, I I hope they're props making, to them. <laughs> I hope props to them. Yeah, I hope they're making uh, they're making good use of it. Um, okay, well let let's have an obligatory COVID question anyway. How are you holding up in lockdown? Are you having uh, great street epistemology conversations with your kids about why they don't like broccoli and stuff like that, or uh, or whatever? 
I mean, I've used this approach with my family and friends so much that they kind of already use it on their own claims. So I don't, you know, every once in a while, maybe they'll say something and then I'll question them about it. Uh, as far as COVID, I mean, I'm not going out and doing conversations, but it's allowing me to catch up on editing, which, as we talked about, takes a lot of time. Sure. Um, my focus really now is shifting more from recording examples and editing them and putting them on my YouTube channel and shifting more towards a strategic vision of what we want to do with this method. So we've started a nonprofit. And I should mention, everything that I'm talking about is me, Anthony, speaking. Uh, I'm not – at the moment, I'm not speaking on behalf of the of the nonprofit, but I mean, I, we want to develop course materials t- so that people can learn this. So um, there may be people who don't like watching videos; they'd rather study it or or have a course on it. So we have that initiative. And then the other thing is, I want to I want to try to find a way, Brian, to study the effectiveness of this approach. We don't really know if it's. We think it's beneficial and we think it's effective, but we we want to test it in some way. So if there's anybody listening to this that has expertise in that, please reach out to me because at some point we want to start looking into that. You know, I mean, the, the logical step is, you know, you're asking people about their belief on a on that 100 percent scale. You know, hey, can we contact you in three months and six months and however? And yes. See where you're exactly. on that scale. Right. You know, and it's right. may, maybe primitive, but it's it's certainly a good start. Okay, mm-hmm. Anthony, as we're as we're coming gradually towards the break, um, yeah. I want to kind of close out this interview section with some short, snappy, completely binary questions. It's no examination or probing whatsoever. It's essentially the complete opposite of street epistemology. <laughs> Unfortunately, I couldn't think of a good name for it. The best I came up with was Skype opinionology or perhaps the nocratic method. But it, like it's that. a working process. Okay, there we go. Let's yeah, go with that. Good. All right, so quick fire, Anthony. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Phone call or text? Text. Facebook or Twitter? Twitter. Xbox or PlayStation? None. Neither. Uh, the Space Girls or the Backstreet Boys? I don't know Space Girls, so I guess I have to go with Backstreet Boys. Boo! It's, it's space. It's just my bad Scottish accent. Okay. Um, toilet paper on the holder, over or under? Totally over. Good boy. Well done. Absolutely. Trump Anyone or Biden? who does it under is wrong. You're yeah, just good. wrong. Good, good. Trump or Biden? Biden. Beer or wine? Hmm. I mean, you're two beers in already. Come on. I know, but I'm not a big beer drinker. So I, 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 I rarely drink beer. I'll go with beer. Beer. Okay. Scotland or England? Oh, come on. <laughs> I haven't been to Scotland, so I'm going to, just like my, my Backstreet Boys answer, I'm going to defer and just say England for now. Boo! Wrong answer. Okay, baseball <laughs> or basketball? Oh, I don't like sports. Um, basketball in is which, more exciting. In which case, uh, I'll miss out my next question. Uh, sunbathing next to the pool or hiking in the hills? Hiking in the hills. Hmm. Uh, Matt Dillahunty or Christopher Hitchens? Matt Dillahunty. Coke or Pepsi? Pepsi. Okay. Finally, most importantly, what order do you have things in your cutlery drawer? Is it forks, knives, and spoons like a normal human being or some other order like some kind of barbarian? The barbarian approach. Boo! 
Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. That's a bad note to be finishing <laughs> on. Okay, so let's let let's let's have one more thing we to the for you to mention before we go to the break. So, mm. um, folks, there's a, a YouTube video that I'm going to put the link into the into the chat yeah. in in Twitch about. It's a short form video that. If you want, if you're not busy going to the toilet or drinking, um, maybe you could watch it during the break. Anthony, do you want to just kind of tee this up, what the video is about? Yeah, this video was recorded about two years ago, not on the college campus, but on a, on a hiking trail. And it was with two young guys. And one of them thinks the law of attraction is real. So it's a non-God example. And the other fellow thought it was bunk. And I ended up sort of showing one of them how to use the approach on the other who thought the law of attraction was a thing. And as I look at the slides that I – some of the ones that I showed and some of the ones that didn't come up, it's not, not a big deal. But a lot of the concepts that we talked about today, you'll notice in that video, and it's only seven or eight minutes long. We talk about a confidence scale. We explore the quality of the reasons. I give them plenty of time to think about it. There's this long moment of, of aporia where the person is contemplating – their confidence in their claim. And I think there's even a shift in confidence at the end. So yeah, if you get a chance, you might want to check that out. Back, everybody. Hopefully you are fed and watered and relaxed. And maybe you checked out that video that we referred you to before the break started. So uh, it is time for you to shine. Um, we're welcoming back Anthony Magna Bosco. Please shower him with virtual applause and Twitch again, and we will jump over to the Q&A. So first question is by the devilishly handsome, allegedly Andy Wilson. Um, asking questions doesn't require knowledge. How big a role does knowledge and opinion play in terms of the quality of the questions? Mm, that's a good one. Yeah, you don't need to know anything about the topic when you're using street epistemology to explore people's confidence in their claims. Uh, how big of a role does knowledge and opinion play? I mean, opinion opinion influences us and it brings our own biases into play. So what I found is the more that I can control for my own biases and my own opinions, if I can just temporarily for the purpose of the conversation set that to the side – and just try to be a mirror to the person that I'm talking to, even if they say the most ridiculous, despicable, disrespectful things, I try to just stay – it, it takes practice. It's not easy to do. Sure. But if you if you can just set aside your own understandings and your own opinions, you're going to probably be really good at it. I've seen people struggle with street epistemology when you're really good at something, when you have knowledge or close to knowledge as you possibly can on a subject – that tends to be the ones that people struggle using street epistemology on the most because they're tempted to correct the person. I need to correct. They have this fundamental misunderstanding. I need to correct them. I need to give share this knowledge that I have. And that could be one of your biggest liabilities. At some point, you can do that. But generally, especially if it's early on in a conversation and you have no idea who you're talking with or or what they may find impactful to their confidence on their claim – shelving your own knowledge and understanding is crucial at this. You can break it out later when they're ready for it. But as far as like assessing where they're at and challenging, challenging them on their own views, when you're really knowledgeable about the, about the Bible or the Quran or homeopathy, and you have this wonderful study that's just going to show that they're wrong, if they're not ready for it, hold off on it. 
Okay, so I'll I'll hold back on explaining to you why Scotland is superior to England. But is right. are there times, Anthony, like you know, if if somebody, for example, has got like a really obscure belief, or you know, they're it's a it's not very well known religion, do you find that the the type of things that statements they're saying and the 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 things that they prop those beliefs on tend to be similar across the board? That was one of the crazy – it was it was surprising to me. That was a surprising discovery that no matter who you talk to when it comes to a specific claim, like a God existing, the reasons that people give are almost always the same reasons. I read it in a book. I take it out of faith. I had this personal experience. So the claim almost doesn't even matter, which kind of goes back to Andy's original question about your, the knowledge that you have on the subject. It could actually be a deterrent to progress in the conversation if you if you approach this as, oh, I need to correct and teach this person on this view. So, yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, let's move on. Next one's an anonymous question. What is the difference between street epistemology and the mm. Socratic method? I don't I hate this question because I don't know the Socratic method very well. I have a, a modest understanding of what it is. And whenever I try to explain these differences, I always feel like I'm. Uh, not doing a good job of differentiating the two. My understanding of the Socratic method is where concepts are discussed, like what is virtue or what does it mean to be pious or something. And in street epistemology, we generally will explore any claim that a person makes. It's not these large concepts, but claims about reality that people are making. So like I think karma is real or the law of attraction is a thing or my God is real or so-and-so is the best president for the job. And <clears throat> I guess with regards to the I – mean, there are some similarities I suppose in that we're asking questions and we're resisting the urge possibly to like tell somebody things. We're, we're like exploring. Um, I also think that there's like a – there's a psychological component to street epistemology that probably isn't in the Socratic method. Like this idea of um, maybe uh, active listening, like repeating back what I'm hearing you say and rephrasing it in a way where you say, oh, yeah, that I couldn't have worded it better myself. Things like that. We're deriving some of these things from psychotherapy. And I don't think that happens in the Socratic method. That's about as best as I can answer that question. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you talk about paraphrasing and active listening, it just gives me horrible flashbacks to when I used to work in a call center as well. So, um, mm. you know, that's that's <laughs> that's part of standard call center training as well. Um, mm. OK, let's see. Uh, another anonymous question. Survey data shows less than 50 percent of British Christians are sure God exists. Is that consistent with your experience of American Christians and others? I don't know what the latest survey results show, but I think it indicates that uh, the younger people are, the more likely. If we were looking at 18-year-olds and younger, it might be 50%. Um, uh, the other thing, too, is I live in Texas. It's a, it's a fairly conservative state when you compare it to, like, New York or California. Sure. So there's some regionality to it as well. Most of the people that I run into seem to have supernatural beliefs, including God beliefs. I would put it, I would say maybe 10% of the people that I run into are atheists in my area. Okay. And it, it seems to me like there's a lot of slow drift away from 
you know, people being like specifically identify as a Christian versus being culturally Christian. Yeah. Yes. Um, sometimes people say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious, or I think God is love. Mm. And sometimes it, it can almost be harder. It is harder, I think, to to use this approach of street epistemology when the claim is nebulous. So sometimes you have to spend a little bit more time on the front end exploring what the claim actually is. So when you say God is real, what do you mean? And they may say, well, it's it's something that created the universe, but it doesn't interact with our daily lives. Okay, that's a completely different claim than I think Jesus is real. He's here right now with us. Would you pray with yeah. me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that that harkens back to what you were saying about the street epistemology method being, it seems like it relies a little bit more on specifics, you know, like a specific claim rather than those broader, those broader concepts. So it, it must be difficult. I think a- anytime somebody says, I'm spiritual rather than religious, you know you're in for a long conversation before you get anywhere, anywhere that you can really grab a hold of anything, right? Um, okay, next one is from Blamey Ragnar, something whose name I am definitely mispronouncing. Um, what are the best ways to prepare for a street epistemology session with a close person? I believe that is close emotionally and not proximity. Um, how do I know when I'm ready? Uh-huh. See, I thought that was a typo, and they were saying a closed person, like somebody closed off, closed-minded. Oh. Well, let's do um, both. Okay. Let's start with let's start with a, a an emotionally close person, and then we'll go to closed-minded. Yeah. If somebody is emotionally well, emotionally closed is kind of a weird, weird phrasing. When I think um, of a close, I, I presume that means family member or close friend or whatever, right? Well, the first thing we were talking about, it, it, well, I'm, I'm a little confused now. Were we talking about a closed-minded person or a close person to you in your let's circle? Say, let's say, yeah, close person to you in your circle. That's okay. Um, more and more, I'm starting to think that maybe you should let other people SE your close family and friends than doing it yourself. I mean, you can still do it, but there are additional challenges with it. Um, I see lots of people who join the various SE communities saying that they are using this approach with their family member or friend and they're, they're having trouble with it. And it may be because of all the baggage that, that preceded that initial conversation, that, that conversation that they're having now. Um, I mean, one thing that you can try is just say, I'm interested in, I know we've been butting heads and arguing and stuff, but I want to try a different approach. Would you mind if I asked you 10 questions about this claim that you have? And then you can do the same to me in return. How would that work? You can try that, I suppose. Um, I did write a blog post on how to use street epistemology with loved ones. Now, if they're closed-minded, I think I would have a conversation about why they're so closed-minded. You need to figure out why they're so guarded. Are you guarded? Are you just as guarded on all of your beliefs or just when it comes to this one? What is so special about this belief where you would be more guarded about it or, or closed off to changing your mind? And then sort of... Uh, I don't know, circumventing some of the defenses that's causing them to be closed-minded. So effectively, that that closed-mindedness becomes almost a, a lever to try and open up the conversation, right? Exactly. You can say, let's say we, we you know, you're closed-minded on the on, on the idea that that God is real. If we if we encountered somebody who was closed-minded that God wasn't real, what advice would you have for getting through to them? And they may actually start revealing ways that you can be using with them to help open them up. 
For sure. Okay, so Ragnar, you got two questions for the price of one. You're welcome. Ragnar. Let's hey, move Ragnar. on to yeah to another anonymous question. Um, how do you maintain the impartiality? Is there a necessity to often check your delivery and biases? Is it useful to follow script? Now we talked a little bit about biases earlier on, but you feel free to elaborate on that. But script preparation. Scripts are useful to a point because they can help people be comfortable in engaging in the dialogue. It could, it could give people confidence to actually engage in the discussion. So scripts are useful. However, if you become too scripted, um, you could be missing out on opportunities. You really kind of need to go where your conversation partner takes you. And yeah, it seems, it seems like if it's too scripted and acted out, it comes across as insincerity and you want authenticity when you're having these dialogues. You really do want to understand what they think is true. You really should approach it as being willing to adopt their view if if they have good reasons and a reliable method. I did uh, I'm not here to just like promote blog posts, but there is a blog post that I wrote. It's something like uh pitching the script and it talks about the pros and cons of having sort of a scripted approach to these at least for getting started. Yeah, I mean, again, from from everything I've seen on your channel, the the, the conversations do seem to be um, genuine conversations rather than anything. You know, um, I, I guess you can you can perhaps see a framework to the discussion mm-hmm. and, a, and, a, and a narrative arc, but you know, you, you certainly don't want to lose that spontaneity of you know, because who who knows where a conversation is going to lead as exactly. well, right? So, you know, exactly. But, I mean, I guess, you know, your ability to go off off script if you have one is going to be important, yeah? It's, it's really useful to not be too tied down to the narrative arc like you were talking about because you don't know where they're, they're going to go. And um, you, you, you want to sort of be open to what they're talking about. Yeah. For sure. There was a, there was a first part of this. How do you maintain your impartiality? That's yes. That's kind of different. Um. I try to remind myself that I can be in their in their shoes. And if I was in their shoes, what would I want somebody uh, would I want somebody to help me figure out that I was mistaken on it? Um, that's tr- kind of how I try to approach these conversations. There's also an, an, I have an affirmation that I sometimes read to myself before I go out to remind myself of why I'm doing it. And I think that actually helps me kind of tamp down my ego and uh, stay as impartial as possible. A little Magna Bosco mantra before you kick off. I like that. There you go. There you uh, go. Uh, so, Anthony, were were you ever a believer yourself in a deity? Yeah. Okay. So at a young age, at a young age, okay. I was always a skeptical kid asking questions. Okay, but, it, but yeah. at least it gives you a little bit of ability to sort of tap into that mindset a little bit, and you know, be be sensitive to that when you're when you're making your approach and. Um, you know, I, hopefully that makes it for a more respectful conversation, right? I, I have loved ones who have these views that I'm exploring with people. So I can – it helps to see people as human beings, you know? They, mm-hmm. they just happen to perhaps be holding a view that's likely not true that's very tied to their identity. And when you start viewing it in that – from that perspective, it really allows you to ask these types of questions as impartial as you possibly can. Yeah. Okay. Um Trevor Smith has the next question. Has anyone, while you're talking to them, been aggressive or threatening? What did you do? Mm, not really. No. It's usually that 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 
yeah, that doesn't usually happen during the conversation. Uh, it's usually more people who don't know what I'm doing or they assume that they know what I'm doing or they've heard about what I'm doing. And then they sort of walk up to me in an aggressive way. Uh, but that's rare, you know? Yeah. It, it doesn't happen enough to really be an issue. Okay. You can take care of yourself though, right, Anthony? You look a, you look a uh, badass. <laughs> Honestly, not really, but I mean, usually I try to, I try to go in places where there's others around where if I do find myself in a situation, I can maybe flag somebody down to help me or pull out my phone and call for help or something. Okay. Excellent. Um, Let's move on. Another anonymous question. We don't have the weather here to do street anything. Um, any thoughts about pub epistemology, given the possible effects of alcohol on the process? Would that be best avoided? I've heard of some people doing pub epistemology, and they've reported lots of su- success doing it. Um, I don't think I'd advocate for doing this approach if you're intoxicated. You know? And also, you really want to have, I don't know, it, yes, it might actually help people be more open and honest, but I don't know. There's, there seems something a little bit off about, like, intentionally going there to sort of leverage the impact of alcohol on the conversation. Um, <laughs> there is yeah, certainly I, a sweet spot if you've, you know, had a couple but not too many that does just loosen you up a little bit and make you more yeah. amenable to, to conversation. But, you yeah. know, that, that's, that's a very hard balance to find. Um, I think when, when I just a little secret, when I first went out, like the first two or three times, I think I, I had a beer. I had a beer and went out because it's like, you know, my nerves are going. But now nothing, nothing really phases me now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I look, I guess I, I guess the beauty of this technique is, t- you know, really, you can you can take it anywhere. Right. Um, so, you know, wh- wherever you find the appropriate place, place to have those conversations is a good place. What about what about online, Anthony? You know, I mean, w- you know, we, we, we touched on the fact earlier on that the comments on and replies on your YouTube channel videos are m- way more respectful than the average YouTube video. There's still some snipiness here and there. Right. But, yeah. you know, is is there any way of attempting to have this type of conversation in a in a Twitter thread or a Facebook thread or at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that that's that's their primary way. They they use street epistemology techniques on Twitter or in Facebook or something like that. Um, there's a, there's too many disadvantages of that approach to really stick with it for a long period of time. Like it might be good to find people to practice with, or maybe you have a couple of back and forths and then you invite them to video chat like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. That might be a really good there, – There's people are much nicer to each other and more generally when they're seeing each other oh, for as sure. opposed to this anonymous sort of vague. And then you have other people jumping in. It, it can get ugly really quick if you try it online. It can. But I, I do it. I do it. I, I, I'm on TikTok now, and I, I've had probably 20 conversations this morning on TikTok in the comments section of the videos. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it can be done. It's challenging. Yeah. With caution, though, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do remember one time just trying to be nice and diplomatic with somebody that I didn't know, and 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 I said, "Hey, do you want to jump on Skype and have a chat about it face to face?" And they went, "Get lost, weirdo." Um, so, you know, yeah. I, I, I I tried, right? But uh, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe you have to ease into it. Like, let's just do a yeah. private one-on-one text chat, and then maybe after a couple of weeks, you can do some video or something. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. 
Um, fascinating, says Anonymous. Um, in the practical implementation, what approaches do you take when impartial questions or spe- specific strategic leading lines? Can other people see that? It's Because you cut out a little bit. It says, in oh. the practical implementation, what approaches do you take when interacting with people? Impartial questions or specific strategic leading lines? Mm, I mean... I try to be transparent and explain exactly what I'm doing. And I've learned to do that because of feedback from people who watch the videos. In fact, a lot of a lot of people who critique the earlier stuff and I still get there's still criticisms of SE, don't get me wrong. Um, those criticisms have been really useful in helping us improve the approach. So that's been really useful. Um, I mean helping a person feel comfortable, letting them know that you're listening to them giving them plenty of time to answer their question or revise a definition. If they want to end it or if it seems like they're becoming too uncomfortable, ending the talk. Uh, all these things are really good for uh, for this approach. Yeah. I mean, the, there are certain themes that I've you know, seen cropping up or, or maybe certain questioning methods and approaches I've seen cropping up from time to time in your videos, you know, like, like as an example, if you're talking to a Christian about their faith, you know, you might ask them to consider somebody from a different religion who also mm-hmm. has faith and, hey, you know, is, is there, you know, d- does that mean that it's a reliable path? So, you know, are there certain, you know, just like little, I don't like to use the word tricks, but certain methods that you can sort of pull out of your little epistemology bag at the mm-hmm. right time in order to try and really get some self-reflection kind of going with the with the person you're speaking to. Yeah, there's, um, I guess, tricks. I kind of think of, I try to think of them as thought experiments maybe, but uh, there there's a few things that we do to help break through common impasses that we notice. So if somebody thinks that truth is subjective and it's just whatever you feel can be the case, then we carry a little box of Tic Tacs around and, and do a thought experiment with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you thought that the total number of pieces was even and I thought the total number of pieces was odd and I just felt that it was the case, uh, you know, what would you think about it? Would I actually be factually correct if we can count them up and determine that they were really odd, for example? Uh, and I think I referenced like the Ferrari example. There's there's little things that you can do. And uh, by no means it's an exhaustive list. And I'm sure that we'll keep developing these little tips, these little tricks, as you say. For sure. Yeah. I've seen that packet of Tic uh, Tacs on your clipboard yeah. there before. I, I just thought it was I got it right here. the person you're <laughs> speaking to. It's empty right breath. Now. Oh, yeah. on brand Tic Tacs as well. What a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you got you to gotta advertise the SE stuff, you know. I mean, shameful branding, right. I think, shameful is uh, very cynical, and we do not stoop so low here at Skeptics in the Pub Online. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, another anonymous question here. I assured um, everybody. A few weeks ago, um, SITPO speaker Tim Caulfield claimed the use of facts works for debunking. He claims mm. evidence for this. Um, please elaborate on why you disagree. Well, I'm not familiar with his study. Um, and it very well could be the case. I don't know. Here's the interesting thing that we're noticing. Um, and I don't know if the study, the study addresses it or not, but it seems like the most recent, uh, 
studies show that people will accept facts that show that they're wrong, but it doesn't tend to impact their attitude on their view. <laughs> so maybe that's what he's referring to. I'm not sure. I don't because, again, remember, we're, we're exploring the person's confidence in their claim. And you can still give people facts that show that they're wrong and they may not budge from their confidence that what they think is true. There's this weird things that our brains are doing and we're there's lots of people who are interested in that stuff that are studying that. Um, I find it kind of ironic that this is actually making me become a little defensive about the street epistemology approach because I'm being presented with facts that might be challenging my views. It's a little funny, but um, well, there, there, know, there may be, there was, let me just add, there may be people sure. who, there may be people who are ready for facts. They're ready for it, especially on a belief that's not tied to my identity. So that would be sort of, I guess I have to look into the study and see, what facts was he presenting and for what belief? If it was a tribal belief, like tied to global warming or or something along the lines where I might be ostracized from my group, my in-group, if I agree with that fact, I'd be really surprised to see if that's the case. But yeah, I don't know. Well, what, what I was going to get to, Anthony, was, you know, let's let's not for a minute assume that all humans are, are the same and, and what the what they respond to, right? I, I think I think we, we can live and we do live in a world where some people respond well to street epistemology. Some people respond well, maybe not initially, to that kind of atheist experience, Matt Dillahunty, shower you with facts type approach. Because, you know, he's had many, many examples of people coming to him, maybe not straight away, but at a later time saying, you you set you set me thinking you set me thinking. There's even um, a, a talk that No Illusions from the Scathing Atheist did about um, the impact of ridicule on people mm. who have ridiculous beliefs. You know, and uh, I think one of his diatribes spoke about you know him being kind of shamed out of some silly beliefs he had by you know like peer pressure and and being joked at. So you right. know. It, it, I, I guess, you know, street epistemology is maybe one one sort of thing you could have in your tool set that, that, that may be effective with, you know, a certain, you know, mm. amount of people. Maybe we need to get all of you together and mm. run an experiment. There we go. Okay. Mm. You can, uh, a couple uh, of thoughts on that. Um, it could very well be the delivery of the facts that's the issue. So if I'm observing somebody getting crushed with facts – because I'm watching they called into the atheist experience or something, or um, they're not the ones they're not the ones in the hot seat being interrogated and, and provided with the facts, but they're observing somebody give the facts. Yeah. That may help them sort of objectively look at it and contemplate it in a way where they're not on the receiving end directly on the receiving end of those facts and maybe the ridicule. You know, watching somebody get ridiculed and you're like, that's the exact same reason why I think that that's true. That could be profound. But if you were to ridicule me, it very well could close me down. But you never know. This is what's good about street epistemology. It's a good leading foot forward because – especially when you don't know where somebody is at, it can help you assess what tool will be the most effective with them. And if you start off on a – if you start off with a ridicule or a fact-finding – a fact-providing approach, you could be shooting yourself in the foot. It's probably better to – to at least at the very start, approach it from an SE perspective and maybe continue that or shift gears if it becomes evident that 
they might respond better to to some other approach. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, next question from Anonymous. Are you familiar with the podcast Be Reasonable uh, from Michael Marshall of the Merseyside Skeptic Society? They're asking, is this an example of street epistemology? Have you heard the podcast, Anthony? I haven't heard it recently, to be honest. Uh, when I was at QED, I think I listened to a few episodes just to get familiar with it because you can't go to QED without hearing about Marsh. <laughs> For sure. He's a, he's a, he's a fixture there. So um, I think I probably listened to a few of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of more on the creating content rather than consuming it. But uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't really answer it. If he's asking questions and, and uh, repeating back, if, if you notice some, maybe, I don't know. I really can't answer that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, it's. Uh, you know, I'm I'm aware of it pretty well, and it, it seems like there's there's a o- very much open questioning approach, but less mm. in the way of probing and pointing um, pointing people's beliefs back at them. But you know, maybe so. Mar- Marcy's got a similar diplomatic approach to the conversation that, that you have in a respectful way as well. So there's there's definitely okay. similarities there. If you know, it's, yeah. it's well worth a listen. Um, yeah. Another thing on that, like. <clears throat> If you have a podcast, you probably want to keep it somewhat entertaining, too. And people, I think, are drawn to conflict. And uh, it, I think it could be tempting, especially if you if you have a show, to kind of spice it up with some, some, acti- some action, some battle, some controversy. Sure. And you don't usually see that in the SE approach. No. Which, uh, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? It's kind of slow and boring and maybe. I mean, I find it fascinating, honestly, but – um, that could be a factor why maybe some people straddle the different approaches. Like they may use a more of a Socratic approach, but then they just can't resist providing facts, you know? And again, you have to think, uh, Marsh is interviewing people likely for his listeners to hear. He's probably trying to reach his listeners, not the person that he's interviewing. So that changes the di- the dynamic as well. So we're not likely to see any, any videos from you in the future, Anthony, with titles like Magna Bosco destroys theist with logic. None of that coming up, no. <laughs> I, I honestly don't see myself ever debating again. I, I don't see – I mean I see the value in it, but for the types of conversations that I'm having, I'm done with that. Yeah, for sure. Maybe for the best. Okay, next question. Uh, an anonymous one again. How how are you fundamentally different to Ray Comfort? Ray Comfort is a street preacher in California, usually stands on a stool and just yells at people. He's projecting. Ray Comfort is, uh, he's in transmit mode. Uh, very rarely can you get him into a, into a, uh, into a questioning mode where he's honestly contemplated, at least from what I've seen. That's the biggest difference. Ray, and I don't want to just pick on Ray, but a lot of people want to tell you what the truth is. And we're exploring how you are so sure that you have the truth. Huge difference. Huge difference. And even if when we get down to the point of realizing maybe that you don't have a good reason for thinking that something is true, we don't then say, well, now here's the truth. Take this book or something. We usually back off and say, okay, well, thank you very much. If you want to talk again, that's fine. Or maybe if you need some resources because like this was some of a, of a traumatic experience for you because it can be traumatic, we um, 
some of us, I think, will help you with that if you need community or resources or something. And I think that's the biggest difference. Telling and asking. For sure. We don't tell in street epistemology usually. We ask. Huge difference. And for, you know, call forward to next week's show, um, one of our guests on the show, Eli Bosnick, has licked Ray Comfort and has photographic evidence to, to prove it. I think I was at that event where he did that. I think I actually saw him do that. Was that the Reason Rally? I believe it was, yeah. If it was if it was the second Reason Rally, I think I was there, and I think I observed that. Well, I have a memory a, of it. But it it was a, a magic moment, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, oh, so the, the next question is from David, and I think we've maybe talked on it a little bit late uh, already, but um, is there any data on how people's opinions change after being SE'd a day later or a week, a month? Nope. I don't no think there is. No. No data. Something that, that we want to do, I'll, I'll put my SEI hat on, the Street Epistemology International nonprofit. As the executive director of that, we're, we're getting some funding in now, and one of the things we want to do is do a study to see, do these talks stay with people? Do they... Do they impact their confidence? Do they affect other beliefs that they hold? Because in street epistemology, we're interested in method. How reliable is your method for concluding that that claim that you have is true? And if they discover that that is an unreliable method, there may be other claims that they are basing that methodology on. So this has the potential to knock down or affect other views that they hold. For sure, yeah. That's what's so cool about this approach is the efficiency of it. Uh, But to answer the question, no, there's no data on it, but we're hoping to get there someday. I have heard many ex-believers talk about like the death of a thousand cuts with, with them losing their faith. You know, there's there's a small yeah. chip chip in the armor. You know, they they, they go from a hundred percent down to ninety nine, and from there just things start to kind of unravel. And I, I I think it's a it's a logical progression to follow if somebody is intellectually honest enough to keep looking after the conversation ends, right? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, though, that, that that's even the best metrics to use to to qualify the conversation as a success. Because remember when we first talked about, it's not always about shifting people's confidence. It's about getting clarity and understanding on their views and the quality of, of their evidence and the reliability of their methods. So um, – Sometimes I think we can get so wrapped up in the in the in the the confidence scale that we see like oh that's the one and only metric that we should be using to determine if this conversation stayed with a person or impacted them in some way. Yeah. So I guess you know perhaps either rather than or as well as focusing on that sliding percentage scale there's there's other factors that you might want to bring into that like has it changed your outlook on life or how you approach people how you have conversations etc 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 like is there a is there a spillover effect into other other areas of their life right exactly all right we'll we'll get it written up afterwards a couple more beers no worries (laughs) Okay. okay um next question from vic uh, Vic asks, how do you approach the sanctimonious uh, who hold what you may consider abhorrent views for religious reasons? Hmm. You must have tough. a few of them in Texas, right? <laughs> oh, no, we don't have anything, anybody like that. Um, <laughs> that is challenging. That's challenging. When When somebody is so sure that they're right and they're so sure that you're wrong or they assert that they know what your position is on it. You're just pretending that you don't believe it. You really do. 
that is so frustrating. So sometimes I ask myself, um, can I control myself during this conversation? And if the answer is no, I might just end it or shift the subject and have a completely different conversation about some other topic that I don't get triggered by. So, you know what, rather than talk about God because you're really focused on it, maybe we can have another conversation about uh, prayer, for example. Let's let's specifically talk about prayer and how you determine that it's a real thing. Or maybe we don't talk about religion at all. And uh, let's talk about some other claim that you tend to make. Um, deciding for yourself when to do these talks and when to leave is an important thing to kind of keep in mind. Uh there's nothing wrong with saying, I, I just cannot stand that person and I'm not the one for this. I'm not the one for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but I try, you know, I, I, I think I've become pretty good at like setting aside my, my ego and my identity for the purpose of the conversation. And it also helps knowing that I'm recording it and that if I am good at distancing my ego from the horrible things that are being said, um, it will probably be viewed by lots of other people who will say, wow, you did a really good job in doing that. You know? So there's, there's sort of like that. And there's this weird incentive to being neutral and not getting triggered by what you're being told, because I know that people could possibly be watching it and you can even pretend that people are watching you and that might actually help you stay more calm. I wrote a blog post on how to stay calm and focused when doing street epistemology. Maybe somebody can drop a link to that in the, in the chat. Yeah, for sure. Um, tough subject. Okay, the next one is from Gray. Um, if someone's belief stems from a traumatic event, um, example is turning to God after a death, and discussing the belief surfaces the trauma, how do you handle that? Ask the person if they want to explore the claim. Are you ready for this? Would you rather wait, or would you just rather just not talk about it at this time? Basically, if I'm ever in doubt about whether I should proceed, I ask the person if we should proceed. So it, it takes the responsibility off of me and it's on to them. Yeah, that's tough. <clears throat> Sometimes people need time to process these things. Okay. Um, let's see where we are. Okay. Oh, you faded out just a little bit there. Oh, am I there? Your audio got really low for some reason. Okay. All right. Hopefully you can hear me okay now because we have come to the the last question. Uh, time is getting the better of us, Anthony. So um, Rob Palmer is seeing us out with a bang and not a whimper. His question is, what was the most unusual belief you have encountered in uh, street epistemology? It's hard to say what's the most unusual because there's been quite a few. Um, lots of people think ghosts are real or that... Uh, God, they're sure God is real because they had a dream and they they talked to their dead dog who was in heaven. So that was a weird one. But the the one that is sort of most recent is um, is with a person who thought that thinks maybe that the narrative of a culture should be accepted as factual truth. I had a three part series with this person, and uh, she was of the position that the older and more aggrieved the culture is. The the more we should accept it as being factually true to be the case, whatever they say should be accepted as truth. Just because 
they thought that it was the case. I hope I'm not misrepresenting her position, but you can watch the series. That was one of the most unusual things that uh, going back to the box of Tic Tacs, which these are empty now. I, I guess I ate them or something. Um, <laughs> if we had two cultures that uh, one culture said that the total number of pieces was even and one culture said that the total number of pieces was odd, the culture that had the that was there longer in that geographic area had the dibs on the truth of the matter. Oh. That, that blew my mind. This idea of narratives being accepted as epistemology, as, as ways to coming to know things to be true. That was fascinating. That was absolutely fascinating to me. I'm not sure how to process that one. Although I, we, I we did. We, we walked through it. And there were some good moments where she was thinking about it, pausing, saying, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that. This is exactly what we're trying to do. We, we want to help people process these claims on their own. This isn't me about explaining to me how stupid she is for thinking that. Sure. It's about exploring how she can justify that claim. And that's what street epistemology is all about. So, yeah, well, I mean, that's all you need, folks. Go, go and watch those videos for sure. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm certainly going to be doing that. Um, Anthony, we're going to bring things to an end. Um, okay. Huge, huge thank you for taking your time. I know it's the middle of the day for you where you are. We, we ex- really appreciate your time and attention. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.